podcast where liberty is our mission today is tuesday september 3rd 2013 my name is ben stone and this is podcast number 343 and today we have a very special treat uh my friend michael w dean uh and i decided to record one of our phone conversations and so here we go a conversation with michael w dean and with me is my friend Michael W. Dean from the Freedom Fiends radio program. Michael, welcome back again to BadQuaker.com. Yeah, hello. <laughs> That's all you've got to say? You're this tremendous, famous, world-famous radio personality, and all you can say is hello? <laughs> I get paid by the word, man. Dude, I'm still waiting for the money transfer. There you go. The first word is free. Hello. <laughs> No, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm being polite and I'm waiting for you to guide. It's your show. Uh-huh. I'm, uh, I don't know. I guess I've gone through some transformations lately, but you know, uh, they, they say that you should tell people, you should show people you've changed, not tell them. So I don't know if I'll go into too much of that, but, um, people have said I'm more polite lately. So I don't know. I'm waiting for you since it's your show instead of taking it over and breaking a chair over your head on your own show figuratively. <laughs> well, you know, that typically that's kind of what I like my guests to do. I just kind of provide for them a, a platform, but this is a little weird between you and I, cause like, like you've said a few times, we talk on the telephone several times a week, at least sometimes daily. And we'll spend an hour or two hours talking on the phone. So to try to, to get that balance between what's a casual phone call between two friends and what's an entertaining show for other people to listen to, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Yeah. And what were we talking about before in the pregame? We were talking about Benjamin Franklin. Ah, yes. What were we saying? You introduce it. Well, <laughs> lately, uh, I've heard on your show a few times that you've mentioned that very famous quote. Where, uh, Franklin, you know, according to the legend, according to the myth, according to the story, Franklin supposedly comes walking out of the, uh, uh, whatever the, the building was. I can't remember in, in Philadelphia where they, where the Continental Congress was meeting. And a woman, uh, comes up to him and says, you know, something to the effect of Dr. Franklin, what kind of government do we have? And he, he supposedly answers something along the lines of, uh, woman, you have a uh, uh, a republic if you can keep it, and the you know the the traditional constitutionalists just get all warm and fuzzy when you hear when they hear that being spoken, because they you know immediately to them those words alone mean 
the whole world is in balance and everything is good. When in fact, a republic is a horrible thing. It's a horrible evil. Iran is a republic. Yeah. Um, Soviet Union was a republic. <laughs> China is a republic today. The, the republic that, that led to Hitler being in power was a republic. Yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, they off, there's a Martin Luther King quote that I like and, uh, we put in our guns and weed movie and it's Martin Luther King said, and it was, it was a statement about the eth- ethicalness, the, uh, the why it's good and okay to break unethical laws. And he said everything Hitler did was legal. And we liked that and put that in our movie and that's, uh, often pointed out. As, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, yeah, I do believe it's ethical to break unethical laws, and I like that, uh, King said that. But I would kind of argue that everything Hitler did was not legal. I mean, he did rise to power by a vote in the Reichstag, but after possibly burning the Reichstag to the ground, and after definitely jailing and killing a few members of the Reichstag that would have voted against him. And that would not have been legal. So not everything Hitler did was legal. And I would guess that probably in our Republic, not everything that politicians do is legal. And matter of fact, I think probably most of it isn't. And even the stuff that is, I don't think is good. But yeah, that thing from Franklin, I mean, that's set around in what I often in what I call dad spam, which is, well, let's see the Freedom Fiend's definition of dad spam. That'll help explain it. Dad spam. I'm going to the freedomfiends.com glossary. Dad spam. Forwarded crap that old people who can barely use a computer email to everyone they know. Usual topics include heartfelt letter from a dying Marine, proof that Obama is a secret Muslim, and Things we said in 1955 and danger, you might die if blank with a bunch of exclamation points. Those are easily debunked by a quick look at Snopes.com. Dad spam is easy to spot. It usually contains lots of capital letters and exclamation points and rows and rows and rows of, of, of forward marks. You know, the, uh, the right pointing arrow bracket thing, mm-hmm. um, from being forwarded again and again by people who don't know that you can remove those marks. And it's always CC'd to everyone, never BCC'd. Dad spam is usually sent from an AOL or Yahoo account. Uh, Michael Dean, that's me, has a theory that all dad spam originates from a team of paid hacks at some right wing organization, possibly either accuracy in media or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Michael's wife, DJ, coined the phrase dad spam. That is classic fiends right there. Mm-hmm. And and before we uh, started recording this and we were just kind of talking on the phone, uh, I had gone over and started to try to find the origin of that Franklin quote, and I didn't really thoroughly search it out. I just checked a couple spots, and it looks like, it first appeared on the scene in the early 1900s, a hundred and, you know, what, 120 years after it suppo- supposedly happened? Yes, yeah, so the world's oldest man was there when it happened, when Franklin said it. He was a, he was a newspaper boy selling Franklin's newspapers in front of whatever place they took over for the Continental Congress. And, uh, on his deathbed at age 128, he remembered to say that so people could write it down. That's my theory. Even though he had forgot it all that other 128 years. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, the, the idea of a republic, originally goes back to Plato, and Plato wrote the book, The Republic, and he argued in it that 
the perfect government or state, as he re- might have referred to it, and you have, according to how you play with the uh, with the Greek language. But according to Plato, the perfect state would be where the the wise, the elite, the uh, the the special in, among society who are gifted by the gods or whatever, by nature or whatever, those people would sit in rule and judgment. And they would, um, from from their great pool of wisdom, they would let all the rest of us peons uh, know how to live our lives. And they would judge us, and they would write the laws, and they would make all the uh, the things in society work. Well, everybody else, you know, basically just works and pays them money. And so that's the <laughs> that's the true idea of a republic, and that's just disgusting. Well, that's. Uh... That's coming back. I mean, it's been a long time when, when the uneducated or less than educated like George Bush got to run the republic or at least be the figurehead of running the republic. And, uh, no, it's making a comeback, man. I mean, the Obama administration is totally stocking the pond with academics who've never run a business, you know, including like the new, the new czar who's taking care of the, the czar of everything, the little girl who's taking, uh, over Cass Sunstein's position, uh, who looks about 12, but I guess she's 27 and she's a Juilliard trained, uh, violinist. Yeah. I mean, all these people basically think they're smarter than us and should run everything for us. And that's a republic. And, you know, it worked in Iran. It worked in, uh, pre-Hitler Germany that put Hitler in power. And wasn't Plato, uh, didn't he sleep with little boys? Or am I confusing him with Socrates? Uh, I don't recall. I'm not that old, so I don't recall. <laughs> I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically a republic means uh, the, the smart people who've been to college get to rule the people who haven't. And they get to be picked by the stupid people. I mean, think about the weirdness of voting, okay? You're not smart enough to rule yourself, so pick the person that's going to rule you. If you're not smart enough to rule yourself, you're probably not smart enough to pick the right ruler. But I guess they stocked the pond with people who are the the field of people you can vote for with those that are so not different underneath and just different on the surface to where doesn't matter who you vote for. It's it's basically a game to make slaves feel like they have some power. Well, often in our conversations, we wander to the movie uh, Idiocracy, and mm-hmm. uh, it's not hard to see that if if you know if you constantly uh, nurture people and you constantly take away the burden of having to think and you constantly take away the burden of having to work for a living and things like this. And you constantly uh, reward the uh, certain classes of people in society that are less productive. You reward them for having more children. You naturally set up a situation where um, uh, where what the pool of voters constantly votes in uh, it it doesn't you know you might start off with this idea that you're going to have the smartest and the bravest and the uh, you know the best in society ruling. But as you're as you're uh, making more and more of society dependent upon those rulers, you dumb down society to the point of where whoever they might choose is probably going to be a personality choice, not an intelligence choice. And so the next thing you know, you've got a worldwide wrestler running the world. 
Well, there's yeah, there's a um, there's another dad spam. Most dad spam is spam is really stupid. There's actually some kind of smart dad spam sometimes. Um, DJ's dad gets a lot of it and forwards it. And one of the things that he forwarded, I can't remember who this was attributed to, but it was uh, somebody, some great man somewhere, saying that historically democracies tend to last between two to three hundred years and then collapse. And they collapse around the time everyone realizes they can vote for a living. Yeah, and that's really a key. And I, I think we're getting to that point uh, where uh, that's becoming the situation. And you mentioned also a second ago how um, how the pool of, uh, you know, the ones that were allowed to vote for, how they control that. And, and a good example of that was in the 2012 election with Ron Paul, where the Republicans clearly cheated over and over in, you know, in state after state after state. They blatantly, openly, and clearly cheated, and the news media never really seriously called them on it. There were a few people in the media that, that mentioned it. But it was it was blatantly obvious that the election was fixed before the actual election ever even took place. You know, Democrats should have been screaming about that as loudly as Republicans. If the, Because Democrats often... Uh, trumpet the idea of the importance of democracy and the importance of representation and the fact that they didn't and the fact that Republicans just mostly for the most part went along with it except ones that were backing Ron Paul uh, it just kind of proves that we've entered what uh, Nima calls the the second rhino phase which is beyond Republican in name only it's representative in name only to where if uh, there there is going to be a sea change in how people are represented, uh, the, the people running the representation uh, squash it like a bug and change the rules and cheat and break the law and break their own bylaws, which is allegedly what happened with the Republican Party. They uh, haven't been tried for it, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say. They broke the law because, uh, I can't, I, the, I have proof of it. I mean, I, I interviewed a guy who was a Wyoming, uh, Republican party alternate muckety muck for the party and had been since before Ron Paul. He was backing Ron Paul, but he wasn't one of these cats like Nima who joined the Republican party to work for Ron Paul. This was a guy who'd been, been one for a while. And, uh, he was there at the Wyoming one where, uh, Dick Cheney and Romney's son basically got up and told all of the delegates how to vote, you know, basically broke at least the bylaws of the Republican Party, if not the uh, the law, the, the electoral law. Well, this kind of goes back to something you said there a second ago in reference to whether Hitler broke the law or not. Um, Nixon, in a very famous quote, uh, well, actually, I think. I think Nixon may have been talking to the guy that just died the other day. Uh, the um, can't remember his Frost. Name. Yeah, yeah, David Frost. It may have been in those interviews, but Nixon said um, it's important that the American people know that their president's not a crook and I'm not a crook. And then he went on to explain that the fact that he was doing it meant that it couldn't be against the law because because he was doing it. Now uh, Saddam Hussein made this exact same argument in court when he was standing trial for his life and the guy uh, the prosecutor was accusing Saddam Hussein of breaking the law and Saddam Hussein Saddam Hussein literally said 
you don't have to read that law to me. I wrote that law. It's impossible for me to break it. I'm the one that wrote it. And I think there's this certain mentality among people, among the rulers, among these elite, uh, these aristocrats, as as Hamilton called himself. Um, there's an attitude among them that they are the law. Or in Hitler's words, Hitler actually said, I am Germany and Germany is me. Or or it could be translated, I am the state and the state is me. But um, and I think that would be a closer translation because he wouldn't have used the word Germany because that was that's a more of an American word than a than a German word. But anyway, uh, but the point is there. You see what I mean? That um, these people believe themselves to be the law. It's it's kind of goes along with what I've talked about with the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and man places himself as God in that seat. I think that Nixon was one of the first presidents to be blatant about that i mean presidents have always broken the law going back to the first president you know breaking the law (laughs) shortly after the ink was dry on the constitution with the uh what was it when he when he taxed the alcohol makers the whiskey whiskey rebellion yeah yeah but i think nixon was kind of the first in line i could be wrong but i think he was the first in line to really just come out and say i'm above the law and that has been refined to the point where, you know, Eric Holder and Obama are basically saying that due process is one of their lobes of their brain speaking to the other lobe of their brain. They're not saying that, but that's what Scott Horton surmised it as. And it's pretty accurate of how they look at things and reinterpret law. And I think it's interesting that Obama is – I think it's important that his background was uh, teaching constitutional law. He, he was a constitutional attorney. And he ran, that was one of the things he ran under was, yes, he's a constitutional attorney, which makes it sound like he will have utmost respect for the Constitution. I think it means he was very well suited to find all the loopholes and (laughs) variations he could in the Constitution. Well, it's very much like uh, like you guys say in one of your – was that in Guns and Weed? It may have been in Guns and Weed where – yes, it was, where uh, the line is – the Constitution is a well-crafted – no, that's in your commercial, isn't it? Yeah, the, the Constitution yeah. is a well-crafted uh, – how does that go? <laughs> you know the Constitution well enough to know it's a well-crafted document to uh, increase federal tyranny to the point we are now. Something like that, which yeah. is kind of my interpretation of the book Hologram of Liberty by Boston Tea Party. Uh, and Boston did great work with that book, but – it's not a unique idea that the Constitution uh, was set up in 10 – you know, a lot of people take the thing of, well, we failed Franklin. We we weren't able to keep our republic. But it's it's more accurate probably to say that it was set up to create the amount of federal tyranny we have now and then some down the line uh, by people like Alexander, Alexander Hamilton and, and George Washington, you know, the founding lawyers as Boston calls them. And – it's not an, a unique idea to Boston Tea Party. He did he took it further. He stood on the shoulders of giants with it and you know basically annotated it with footnotes and proved it. But it exists in that quote from over a hundred years ago by Lysander Spooner, and you know the quote I'm talking about. Oh yeah, that the Constitution has either allowed the government we have or has been uh, useless to prevent it. And either way, the Constitution doesn't deserve to exist. And yeah. further in that same document, which was called Constitution of No Authority, um, 
Lysander Spooner lays out the argument that there's no possible way that you can write up a document and then have a generation of, of, and it wasn't even a whole generation of people agreed to it. It was only a very small group of people that inflicted yeah, it on everybody else. And then, they, and then they came out the door and told the peons what they'd done behind closed doors. And you pointed out that that Congress, con, con, what was it called? The conflave? The, no, yeah, the constitutional the, convention. The conflagration. Yeah. You know, it was behind closed doors and it was, uh, done early. They were there to meet people to do it. And what happened? Yeah. Uh, six months before the meeting was supposed to take place. Six weeks or six months? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Six weeks. Six weeks before the actual event was supposed to take place. Uh, Washington shows up with a troop of, of very faithful soldiers that went around with him pretty much everywhere he went. And they took control of the building and only allowed in the people that he uh, had personally invited, he and, and Hamilton had <laughs> invited. And that became the convention. Other people who were elected and sent to the conven- con- uh, convention <laughs> um, were excluded. They got there. They weren't allowed in. There's military there. There's nothing really they can do about it. And so they went home, you know. Uh, so even from the very beginning, there was nothing that might be considered legitimate about it other than, you know, uh, might makes right. And if might makes right, then it's all good. But if might doesn't make right, then there's nothing about it that's good. Yeah, and Hitler did the same thing in what, you know, what Martin Luther King said, everything Hitler did was legal, and I'd argue wasn't legal. Uh, you know, Hitler, the Reichstag fire, it's not necessarily proven that that was a false flag done by the Nazi party. It could have just happened and they took the Eric Holder approach or no, the, the other guy. Who's the other guy who said never let a crisis go to waste? Rahm Emanuel yeah, yeah. approach. And, you know, basically took over, sent some soldiers in and jailed some people that would have voted against Hitler and then killed some other ones. And uh that's not legal in any in any country. In any country, murder is illegal. You know, whether it's on the books or not, whether there's a transition, whether there's a government yet, murder is illegal, you know. And there was a government, there was already a republic, so it was legal. And they didn't really um vote all the power to Hitler. They voted the power to Hitler's cabinet, and then the cabinet was like, Well, yes, of course you can do it. You know, it was a very short law. It was uh it was about four paragraphs long that gave Hitler the power. And a lot of, you know, there's a thing on the Internet of like, I forget the name of the law, but there's some law of like the amount of time it takes for every every argument on the Internet to turn to comparing it to the Nazis or to Hitler. And it sounds like we're comparing the founding fathers of America to Hitler. And why not, man? I mean, Hitler was a politician and he did heinous things and he did them more blatantly and boldly and horribly and quickly than most politicians. But there's comparisons, man. It's not an unapt comparison to compare anything any politician does to Hitler. That, that's, yeah, uh, that's called uh, Godwin's law. But, you there know, you that's go. what you say is really legitimate because if you think about his uh his ascent to power in the early 30s and if you look at, at everything he was doing like in 35 36 37 even up into 1938 he was getting a lot of praise from some very important americans and you know english and everybody else um he was doing a lot of the things that maybe 
you know, uh, had Abraham Lincoln done exactly the same thing, nobody would think a thing about it. It's just that once he crossed a certain point where he started physically rounding up Jews and hauling them to concentration camps, he even at that, he didn't do a thing that was unusual. The U.S. had already been doing that kind of things with the Indians, you know, for quite some t- period of time. And the U.S. had done and that. And they did in, it with the Japanese right around the same time. Very, very true. And they had done it in the Philippines. Uh, the U.S. had done it in the Philippines. And uh, Turkey had done it in, you know, with, uh, with the, I believe, with the Armenians, if I recall. And, yep. Uh, and Stalin had done this. So if you look at it in a, if you just take off the blinders of the storyline that, that, you know, that the government wants you to only look at this one thing, and if you look at the wider picture of what was happening in the time, up until the beginning of World War II, Hitler's actions were not that wild and crazy. And I would make the argument that had things gone differently, um, had the U.S. been really struggling against the Japanese, um, I would make the argument that it's quite possible that somebody like uh, Truman could have turned real nasty on the Japanese that were interned. Or could have had uh, had Hitler be the ally instead of Russia. Yeah, quite possibly. And the Russians were doing this too. I mean, it was... And I, I am not going to minimize the Holocaust in any way. I'm not doing that. And when you said he hadn't done much yet, uh, you meant in comparison to what other people were doing. It was still horrible. Correct. But I do want to point out, it wasn't just Jews, and Hitler did kill 8 million Jews, but he killed about 15 million citizens of Germany, and it was it was other groups of people. It was homosexuals. It was intellectuals. It was people who wrote... News, news articles and spoke publicly against what Hitler was doing. He behead, beheaded some ki- some students, the White Rose Society, publicly beheaded them because they were very critical of what he was doing. Uh, he went after what's that group? They they still there's a religion that still goes door to door and knocks on doors. Not the Mormons. Uh, Jehovah's what are they Witness. called? Jehovah, yeah, he, yeah, he killed a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses. Sorry. Um, you know, he gypsies. killed uh, gypsies. Yeah, he killed a lot of people. It wasn't just Jews. Uh, he didn't like anyone who basically wasn't a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, strong, baby-making stock of Germans. And, you know, he actually – this is pointed out a lot. He was the first – person with you know the first politician with power with an adamant anti-tobacco smoking campaign and the idea was it was just starting to come out that physicians worldwide were noticing a connection between tobacco and health problems and and he felt that uh the body of every german belonged to him that it was his property and you know when you point this out when people are on anti-smoking campaigns now and I've no I have nothing against educational privately funded anti-smoking campaigns but when they try to outlaw what people can do in private businesses or even private homes like they've done in some California towns uh it's apt to compare it to Hitler it really is and it's not you know people will call Goodwin's law on you as soon as you do that as if Goodwin's law is usually used as an example of of, of uh, knocking down a comparison to Hitler, you know, when 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 you compare something to Hitler, rightly or wrongly, 
uh, the, your opponent will often call Goodwin's law on you, like as if it's a yellow card. Like, oh wait, no, you, I, I call Goodwin's law. You are wrong. That must be stricken from the record. <laughs> and uh, sometimes the Goodwin fits, man. Yeah, or we could, you know, start referring to uh, um, Benito Mussolini instead, and and just use him as an example. I but- like using Stalin. I like I like comparing politicians in America to Stalin. That's yeah. most people because mo- mo- it doesn't have uh, it doesn't have the this the anti-Semitic sting that people uh, uh, attribute to it if you compare it to Hitler. You know. Um, I, I hate to say it, this may sound anti-Semitic, it's absolutely not. You know, my late daughter was part Jewish, uh, her mother was Jewish, I have nothing against Jews. Uh, I have things against Israel, but I have things against every nation. I have things against Israel because Israel tends to dictate American military policy more than other nations, including the fact that we're about to go into Syria, or the U.S. is about to go into Syria, is probably Israel dictating that, directly or indirectly. But... uh the Jews tend to – a lot of Jews – I don't want to collectivize them. A lot of Jews in America tend to um, claim claim the Holocaust in a way that uh, makes it so you're not allowed to compare it to anything. In the same way that some black people will get upset if you compare things to slavery. Like if you say taxation is slavery, they – you know, some people want to own the term slavery and say it's sacred and can't be used as an analogy. So I'll just say Stalin, man. I'll just say uh, Bush and Obama act like Stalin. Yeah, very much. Um, I think we need – In to- his early days. You know, you can look at like – I mean there was a time when Hitler hadn't killed anybody and he was still acting like Hitler. And I would say um, very early on in Hitler's career when he had some power but wasn't yet killing everyone in Poland. You know, so somewhere in late 38 or early 39, I don't know, there's a period in there where I would say Obama and Bush have have passed at some point. Yeah. Let's break here and uh, put in some right. commercials and pay for what we're doing. And we actually have a new advertiser at badquaker.com, so you get to hear a new commercial today. And we'll be right back in just very shortly. Folks, there's only a finite supply of gold and silver in the world. However, politicians can print paper on a whim forever and ever. Hedge yourself against inflation and a volatile stock market by purchasing gold and silver bullion from Amagai Metals. As inflation gets worse, it will become more difficult to buy gold and silver. So secure your financial freedom today by visiting amagimetals.com. That's A-M-A-G-I-M-E-T-A-L-S.com. Or you can give them a call at 1-800-882-8496. That's 1-800-882-8496, where financial freedom is yours. And be sure and tell them badquaker.com sent you. Energy, vitality, clarity of mind, and incredible immune support. The awesome power of nature is now in your hands. Hi, this is Sean from One With Nature. Our herbal formulas contain some of the greatest botanicals from around the world, and they are ready and willing to help you achieve your goals. Visit us at onewithnature.com. That's W-O-N, withnature.com. Okay, thanks for sticking with us through the break. Michael W. Dean is back with me on the show again. Uh, hey, Michael, welcome back from the break. Hey, I'm looking at something pretty funny on the Internet. It's uh, it's a picture 
of someone on the ground smiling with one of their friends with his foot on the person on the ground's neck. And uh, the caption says, a couple hours ago, I explained the state to my good buddy, Chris, Chris, the Constitution lover. He required an in-depth explanation with visual aids because he resisted. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was uh, I was thinking in the break about something that I had read this morning, and I couldn't remember what it was I read. So I was going to take you through the the uh, the steps of of me trying to remember what it was I read that made me think of what it was that I couldn't remember. Um, and are we confused yet? Um, so I went over to Lou Rockwell this morning, and there's uh, an article there by Donald Miller, who is a, uh, a heart surgeon, and I believe he teaches heart surgery. Anyway. Uh, he's talking about Wagner's uh, uh, grand opera. It's like a forty-some-hour-long opera, I believe. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to look to see how long it is here. We. It's vastly long. It's where the phrase came from. It's not over until the fat lady sings. That uh. that, that comes from one segment of the opera. Um, it, that's not, actually not the end of the opera. That's just the end of one segment. But it brings, it was the original, well, I shouldn't say it like that. It, it is most likely, this opera, along with the Nordic legends that it's based on, are, uh, very likely what inspired, um, the Tolkien to write about his magic ring and the, 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 uh, quest for power and everything that went with it. The Tolkien story is <laughs> kind of a condensed version, if you can imagine. You know, as long-winded as Tolkien is, uh, Wagner's uh, version of it is even longer. But um, now, how was it that I was thinking about that? Oh, I remember. So Wagner, according to this uh, doctor in this article at Lou Rockwell, was heavily influenced by a German uh, philosopher in the early 1800s. Uh, Schopenha Schopenhauer, I'm probably just destroying his, his name. And Schopenhauer um, essentially made the argument, uh, much like Mises did later on, that all human decisions are based on a very small pocket of, of reasoning. And, um, and Mises himself was highly uh, influenced by uh, Schopenhauer. And uh, now, where was I taking that? Oh, I remember. So Schopenhauer essentially made the argument that uh, that the state will eventually collapse. It will eventually kill itself because it's it, because of what it's based on. It's based on essentially what we would recognize as socialism, or what we were just talking about as as being a republic. This idea that a small group of people, their will, can somehow guide all the rest of society. And uh, um, so this doctor makes the argument that uh, that that can't possibly work and that eventually the thing's going to fall under its own weight, which is, you know, um, I think a lot of people in the wider liberty movement have a really negative thoughts of the future. And, and there could be, I think there probably will be some times in the future that are going to be really bad. But overall, the idea that um, that the thing itself, the state, the idea of government, the idea of republic, of, of a small group of people being superior and running everything for everybody else, 
this idea is so full of flaws that at some point in time, it can't sustain itself and it's going to collapse no matter what. Oh. <laughs> libertarian rant. Not, not really. I, feisty I on, libertarian rant number one. I, yeah, I really enjoyed. Go ahead. On here, I can Over. say I can say that it's a feisty anarchist rant number one. Yeah, I really enjoyed your recent Back to Basics episode, and I think you should do that every six months or so. I think it's really useful. Uh, the Fiends are trying to do it for about a couple minutes every week now because we're on a radio show, and it's not preaching to the choir. We are assuming that most of our audience is people who are just channel flipping and have never heard the ideas before. So uh, we at least pause to define terms that we take for granted like statist and like constitution liquor and Lincoln liquor and things like that. I just keep going back to that thing about that. The story of a, a Republic, if we can keep it, ma'am. I mean, my dad has told me that like it, it's a revelation. Like, you know, he just found the keys to the kingdom. And I just kind of looked at him like, yeah. And, and he's like, but, but yeah, but it's a republic, you know, which uh, the reason I think that that idea is making a resurgence now is because the republic is, it's always been co-opted, but lately it's getting co-opted in the direction of kind of legally cheating the whole thing to where more people who will vote Democrat are able to vote, you know, things like not requiring checking uh and, and i just look at this as like polishing the brass on the titanic i don't even uh <laughs> even worry about it i'm just like yeah that's what they're doing i don't scream about it the way right wingers do but the democrats have really gotten smart about it about getting everyone more and more people to vote basically so they can take over the world and uh take over america and put everyone in a cage on a treadmill figuratively or literally and tax them 110% and give them all the pot they want from their little hamster drip wheel and take all their guns away. And, you know, taking guns away isn't just about preventing tyranny. I mean, if guns were going to prevent tyranny, they would have been used hundreds of years ago. It's way too late for that now. There's, there's, uh, and, and it won't work. It'll just lead to more tyranny. But there is a thing about having guns that even if you don't have the gun on you at the time, there's something about owning a gun that makes you willing to practice self-defense. Whereas if you don't own a gun, you feel like you can't fight back. And that was the thing. Uh, I kind of, there's another thing that goes around a lot about Hitler, that Hitler outlawed guns for Jews, and that's why he was able to take things over. It was gun control. And people who love guns, I love guns, but people who love guns often use that as an example of, uh, you know, the, the Jews wouldn't have gone to the camps if they hadn't had the guns. But Solzhenitsyn, how do you say it, DJ? Solzhenitsyn pointed out that, and he was there, and he pointed out that, uh, that things would have gone a lot worse for the Nazi soldiers if some of the Jews had simply broken a chair over their head when they came in the door. Like even, even resisted instead of just gone, okay which they did in a lot of cases. And there's a, a certain mindset of it's okay to have self-defense, which I think owning guns gives people, you know. Maybe it's uh maybe it is like the lefties say like, "Oh, you think you're a big man because you have a gun." Maybe so. Maybe people need to think they're a big man in the face of tyranny. Maybe it's a good thing. And in in addition, you know, 
guns are good for just the common scumbag who's kicking in your door who doesn't work for a government. You know, they, they will help save your life in those situations. And they're fun, which is why we have them. But I go back to that thing about Franklin, and I'm like, so? You know, it, it basically, a lot of right-wingers pass that one around like uh, like they've discovered the keys to the kingdom, and they want to pass it on to their children before this thought goes away that, yes, it is a republic. And I think the reason that's making a resurgence is what that means is uh, we need more people like Franklin uh representing us, you know, Nima uses that, that phrase, rhino representative in name only, which it's basically become, because it's gotten to the point where even when an overwhelming majority of the people are against something like the bailouts, the politicians do it anyway. They just do it. There's no representation left. You know, taxation without representation was what the Revolutionary War was fought over, but I don't even like taxation with representation. And even if you believe in the idea of the Republic, it's not going to work to your advantage, you know, because not everyone is Benjamin Franklin. And most people who pine for this America of the mind where brilliant gentlemen, farmer scientists like Franklin and Jefferson ran things, uh, they they probably wouldn't like Franklin. I mean, Franklin would probably want to legalize or all sorts of licentious behavior from of sex and drugs. I would imagine he was quite the hedonist. You know, I mean, would the average Republican voter want to have things legal that Franklin did on a daily basis? Probably not. Probably not. You know, you, you mentioned there uh, what you said about the difference in owning a gun and not owning a gun. My wife and I uh, are in the process of taking our um, satellite dish out of our motorhome and setting it up for our home use so that we can turn off our, our uh, cable bill and not have to pay the cable bill and just use the satellite for both the home and in the RV when we drive away with it. And it's a funny thing. You know, at, at Pork Fest, I set the uh, the satellite dish out and put it on our little trailer that we haul our car on and bungee corded it to, you know, to the trailer, and I didn't think about it. It was like, okay, here's like a $500... A satellite dish that anybody can take and use. There's nothing unique about it to an account or anything like that. And uh, and I just bungee corded it to the trailer, and there was no thought of it being stolen um, at all. It just didn't even come into my mind. And where I'm looking at setting it up here at our house in Ohio, uh, it's going to be outside of my fenced area. It's not going to be easily accessed, but if you're careful... You can walk down one blind side of my house and get to it with a pair of pliers, cut the wires, and walk away with it in the middle of the night. And my wife mentioned, uh, and, and she and I were talking about this, how in the motorhome, in campgrounds, I never the thought doesn't even cross my mind that anybody's going to mess with us because campgrounds are filled with people who carry guns. Uh, campers. They're tend- also filled with people who probably look out for each other's stuff more. Yeah, they do. Because they kind of have to. Yeah, they're yeah. constantly looking out the window. They hear a noise in the middle of the night, and some camper is going to be looking out their window or looking out their tent flap to see what's going on. And uh, and people just don't rob campgrounds because I think the mentality of people who actually go out into the woods and camp very often is the same mentality as that which causes people to carry a gun. They're very uh, independent type of people. They're not in a motel. They're not, you know, staying at home watching TV. And that 
creates a very safe environment in uh, campgrounds. And my wife mentioned that here we are in a house with sturdy walls and sturdy doors reinforced and, uh, you know, we have all the amenities and all the safety precautions and we have guns in the house and yet she feels safer in the motorhome uh, and specifically we feel safer with the uh, the satellite dish sitting outside the motorhome than we do it sitting outside of our house. And we're in a very good neighborhood. We're in an upscale na- neighborhood. And yet there's still a greater threat of it being stolen from our house than our motorhome. And I think it goes back to what you were saying, that there are just some people who will pick up a chair and smash it over the head of the Nazi uh, you know, uh, guard that's trying to come in and take him away, and other people will not. And I'm sure there were people who did that in Germany, and they were probably quickly killed. But I'd be, you know, what was Sultan was saying, I can't pronounce his name, I'm not going to try. Um, well, you know, what he was saying in the Gulag Archipelago book he wrote, uh, what he was saying was, if a lot of people had resisted, it, it wouldn't have gone as quickly. You know, it would have, uh, and there were there was a really brave bunch of citizens. Uh, there's a movie made about them that's amazing. Uh, it's an amazing movie. It's about the ghetto rebellion, about the ghetto uprising, which was basically some of the last people alive in the ghetto found some handguns. And they weren't even gun people. They just kind of figured out, like one of them was a machinist and figured out how to operate the guns and explained it to the other people. And they did things like walk up to a Nazi soldier and asked him for a cigarette, and then the other guy would come up behind him and shoot him under his helmet. And it was actually the U.S. had uh, – and I think this was one of the most brilliant things the U.S. has ever done as far as aiding another country instead of going in and carpet bombing it. And it didn't go very far, and they went for carpet bombing instead. But uh, that little pistol called the Liberator, which uh, our friend who makes the printable guns named his first working printable gun after – I've seen a Liberator. There's one in the Cody Gun Museum in Cody, Wyoming, with the original packaging. The Liberator was a little stamped 45 single-shot pistol that was dropped behind enemy lines. Basically, they made them too late, and the war was pretty much over. But the idea was, instead of sending troops in somewhere, you just airdrop these things, uh, you know, by the thousands, and let people use them to capture better weapons. You know, it's, you can't fight a war with a pistol, but you can walk up behind a soldier and shoot him under his helmet in the back of his head with a pistol and then take his gun and probably his uniform and, uh, you know, probably the chocolate bar in his pocket and his cigarettes. And, you know, the uniform would probably be as useful, if not more useful than the rifle in a lot of ways. And a lot of people would, would be horrified by the thought of a Jew putting on a Nazi uniform, but it happened. It happened as a, as, as a tactical idea. And those guys, some of them actually got out and survived because they were fighting a guerrilla war, uh, in the ghetto in Warsaw and lived. And there's a movie made about them. And it's kind of amazing to me because the actors in this movie, uh, are a lot of them are very anti adamantly anti gun people in America in Hollywood now, and I'm thinking like, didn't you see the movie you were in? Come on, man. <laughs> they could have at least read the script, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they did. I think they just said, "Oh, that can't happen here," which is insanity, you know. Uh, the movie's called Uprising, and I highly recommend it. It's a great movie. 
go check it out. You know, and, and we've talked about movies before, uh, to a large extent, uh, there's a lot of neutral movies that are neither, you know, pro-state or, or anti-state or whatever. And there are a few really good anti-state movies that are out there. Um, but there's a lot of movies that use just basic formulas to get people to think in certain ways. And you and I talked oh, about you that. Talk, you want to you want to talk about the hero's journey, huh? <laughs> well, I think it's very informative. I think a lot of people don't realize how how a movie maker can manipulate your emotions. <laughs> how manipulative the formula is. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> Go for it. All right. There's this thing called the hero's journey. It is it's an archetype that exists in storytelling. It predates Hollywood films. It goes back to uh it's really heavily used in Shakespeare, and it goes beyond that in time backwards, basically probably to storytelling around the campfire. And almost all Hollywood movies and TV shows have some variation of this. And it's an arc. It's a story arc with three acts. The uh, middle act is usually as long as the first and third act put together. Basically, in the first act, you meet the hero. And you find out his problem. Without his problem, you don't have a story. He has to solve the problem. That's the whole story. Now, jumping way ahead, often the lesson he learns in the third act has nothing to do with solving the the original problem. It was just a catalyst to learn a different lesson. Uh, but in the first ten minutes, and sometimes he, it is direct, but so in the first ten minutes, you meet the hero, you find out his problem, and he needs to solve it. And he usually is called to action somehow, called to go on this hero's journey. And he usually refuses the call the first time. And then something makes it really personal to him or to someone he loves, and then he has to accept the call. So he accepts the call, and he assembles a team, usually with the help of a mentor. And the mentor is usually someone who used to be at the top of the game in the field that the hero is going to be going into you know, whether it's golf or fighting zombies or playing dodgeball or chasing sharks. He's usually an older person. Um, they're often black and they're often played by Morgan Freeman. I call them the Morgan Freeman character. And they're usually somehow crippled to be, to where they can't actually participate at a, at a heroic level in that field before, but they used to be at the top of the game. And, you know, they're either an alcoholic or they broke their arm or they're frightened or something. They can't go out and be the hero any, anymore, but they have all the information they need to pass on to some young buck who's yet untrained, who is our hero. And the, the, uh, during this training sequence, the, the mentor usually gives a talisman, a physical thing to the hero. And helps him assemble a team, and it's usually a team of ragtag misfits who don't even have skills in in the field that the hero is trying to compete in, but they have skills that can somehow be wedged into work well in that field. So he assembles the team, trains them. Now, in movies, this is often done in a training montage, which is a cliche where they play 80s, you know, upbeat pop metal music and show him doing all the sit-ups and the chin-ups and running up the steps of the library and high-fiving the kids in the neighborhood or whatever he's training to do. They show the training montage. When the training montage is complete, the hero and his and his team, if he has a team, usually has what's called the campfire scene, which is where they sit around and 
kind of have a blowout and then sit around and tell stories about it before they go on to act two where the actual story begins. And a really good example of the campfire scene is in the movie Jaws where they're sitting in the, uh, in the, inside the boat at night telling stories about the sharks and how terrible they are. And, he's uh, got when he's got eyes like a doll's <laughs> eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So after the campfire scene, then they, um, then they start act two, which is where the whole story takes place. And that's usually longer than act one. It's twice as long as act one. It's where the things happen. And it's usually an actual physical journey where they're going toward some final battle in act three. You know, they're either traveling across America if it's a road movie or, uh, and sometimes it doesn't leave the neighborhood. Sometimes they just, they enter a special world that's in the same location. Like they'll, uh, you know, in the movie Hardcore, George C. Scott, like, is looking for his daughter and he enters the world of hardcore filmmaking and it's in, in the same town he lives in, you know. Uh, but he, he goes from the normal world to the special world and does all these things to, He's trained, but he's not fully ready yet to battle Goliath. So he has to go through more little battles. Some he wins, some he loses. And at the end of the second act, he's basically at the gates of wherever the final battle will take place. And there's usually a gatekeeper who challenges him, and the hero bests the gatekeeper in some way, and then the gatekeeper becomes his friend and lets him in. You know, a classic example is Wizard of Oz. Nobody sees the wizard. And so he enters the kingdom where the, the, the innermost chamber where the battle will take place and goes more closer to that, that battleground. And it's usually – the battle usually takes place in an enclosed place. If it's a cowboy movie, it's – uh it's the OK Corral. If it's, you know, the Wizard of Oz, it's, it's in, in the castle with the Wicked Witch. It's always, if it's a courtroom movie, it's in the courtroom. And during this innermost battle, this battle in the innermost chamber, there's, um, some of the qu- most quotable lines usually come from that final battle. Like, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Uh, those kind of lines, the, the tagline of the movie often comes from that battle. And during that battle, the hero, is usually killed and then resurrects. You know, in the old cowboy movies, the hero's shot, it cuts to a commercial, it comes back, he's just winged in the shoulder, he gets up and finishes the guy off. There's usually in the vi- the very final battle, part of the final battle scene, the final blow of the final battle scene, there's usually a memory of the, ment- the mentor. The mentor is often dead by now, but sometimes he's still there and he yells something out or sometimes it's a memory. Use the force. Use the force. And the hero grabs some bit of knowledge from his memory and often somehow uses his talisman to uh, to defeat the hero or defeat the, the bad guy, the Goliath, the, the guy you thought he couldn't slay. And sometimes he doesn't slay him. Like in Rocky, he loses, but he still wins because he went so many rounds with this guy that nobody thought he could go with. So that's the end of uh, end of the second act, beginning of the third act. The very end of the third act, um, there's usually a five-minute uh, – how do you say it, DJ? Denouement? Denouement. The five minutes after the climax where the hero gets the girl – tells a joke, sets it up for the sequel and kind of brings you back down to earth to where you could walk out into the street without being so dazed. You'll be hit by a car out in front of the movie theater and kind of lightens it. And the hero usually brings some new knowledge that he's gained 
back to the, he goes from the special world back to the normal world, but he brings something back that helps other people, you know, and that's what, that's what the heroism is. And the heroism is usually risking his life or his position in life for someone else. And that's what makes him a hero. And that's the hero's journey. And there's a couple other characters in there. There's the, um, that are kind of usually there and kind of important, but not as important as the hero, the nemesis and the mentor. Um, there's another character I usually call the Steve Buscemi character, which is the member of the team that you think is so inept. He's going to get everyone killed, but somehow he helps save everybody later on and get the hero to his final journey. Um, there is the portent, which is the crazy old miner going, don't go into those hills. A bunch of kids died there. You know, he's like warning you and everyone thinks he's crazy, but he turns out to be right. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's the hero's journey, man. And you can, if you think about it, you, you can just spot different movies like, like we, you referenced their, uh, Jaws and, and Star Wars and a couple others, but there's so many movies that follow this pattern. All of them. Yeah. Pretty much all of them. There's, there's a few that don't. And usually the few that don't, um, either aren't very successful because someone is trying to buck the convention of Hollywood so much that they make someone that no, something that no one recognizes or it's something that has the hero's journey, but it's thrown into a blender. A really good example would be Pulp Fiction. I started to where say you that have actually. A, where you have a bunch of intersecting stories happening all at different t- at the same time and they show you snippets of them and then they're reassembled kind of out of order but you could still reassemble that whole thing to a hero's journey another example is memento the movie memento which moves forward and backward at the same time the color parts are moving forward and the black and white parts are moving backward but you could literally re-edit that movie in sequence and it would in in top time time sequence to be correct and chronological and it would have the hero's journey it's just kind of disguised to be clever and it works and you can do this with multiple heroes folding over each other kind of what you mentioned there with pulp fiction yeah um really you have two two different uh heroes journey in those two characters but it's intertwined and the time frames are all mixed up so really it's just a trick that your mind knows your mind knows this hero's journey story so well even if you don't know it you know it and your mind reassembles this whole thing in time sequence even though yeah. the director has tried his best to mix it up as much as possible and the same thing happened if if you think of the lord of the rings trilogy the movies that is the uh uh tolkien put in there like i don't know i'm going to make a wild guess like three or four heroes journeys that he put into that movie. And then, um, and then he blended them into together. the movie or the book. Oh, I'm sorry. Into the books. About the movie. Yeah. Into the oh, books. Okay. He, uh, Tolkien put them in. And then Peter Jackson came along and he looked at it and he's like, well, I'm only going to take these. I think Tolkien, I think and I could... people criticized him for that, but you have to do that to bring something to the screen in a way that people will recognize as a movie. And yeah. the hero's journey can exist in, Different timelines, like for instance, in television, in a one-hour television drama with commercials, there's really seven acts, but they're kind of 
there there are really three acts you know it's like act one part part a and b part etc but they still work as a three-act hero's journey um it works in storytelling it works in an aa meeting you stand up and you're supposed to say what it was like what happened and what it's like now that's three acts and i actually heard a screenwriter at an aa meeting explain that and he got a big laugh and i never thought about it i was like yeah you're right you know (laughs) and uh and there's redemption in the third act always in the hero's journey and it works in uh it's cut into reality TV. Now reality TV is an interesting faking of things because reality TV is usually filming people doing their going about their day and sometimes they're prodded with a stick by the producers to have more conflict because uh rule 1 of filmmaking and film writing is conflict is the essence of drama. Without conflict there's no story. You know, if everyone's just happy all the time, it's not a very interesting story. So they might make conflict and tell, you know, go over and pull her hair and call her a, 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 a whatever. And uh, they do that, but then they edit it in a way that has a hero's journey in each episode. But also TV, you know, anything that's episodic, episodic media will have a hero's journey not only within each episode, but within each season. There'll be a, another hero's journey, a bigger one, and then within all the seasons combined, there'll be another hero's journey. And often when they start making the first series, they don't know how many seasons they're going to go and they don't know where it's going to end. And that's why you often end up with things like the last five episodes of something speeding up the amount of time covered in each episode because they're like, okay, we're getting canceled. We know it. We want to make this great. We got to put our whole next two seasons into this half season, you know? Then that, I think that's kind of happening with Breaking Bad based I, on yesterday's uh, episode. I started to say that. Oh, I haven't even seen that yet. I forgot about that. Wow, I didn't film that last night. Uh, the last one I saw, <laughs> the last one I saw was with um, Shakespearean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, the the guy, uh, oh, boy, I can't remember the the younger guy's Waltz. name. No, the younger Jesse. Jesse. Jesse was walking into Walt's house with a gas can. And I really didn't expect that. That really threw me for a loop because I, you know, I saw the earlier shots, uh, that are actually, you know, forward in time where Walt comes back to the house. It's been abandoned and the skateboard kids have taken it over and the place is kind of gutted. Yeah. And they're, they're kind of doing a pulp fiction type thing where they're jumping ahead in time, but even further. And they do that in every season. Uh, at the beginning of every season of Breaking Bad, it's really kind of brilliant how they do it. The really, the one I loved was showing the, the glass eyeball floating in the pool. Yeah. And at the beginning of that, of, of that, you know, the first four or five episodes of that season, and then they showed more, and then they pulled back to where they showed like, you know, guys in mop suits picking up body parts in Walt's yard, and you're like, oh my god, what happened at Walt's house? And you turn out and it's a, later you find out it's a misdirect and it, you know, nothing happened to Walt and his family and something bizarre happened that may have had something indirectly to do with Walt. But there's a, without, without giving a, uh, deal breaker as I call them or, uh, what is it called? Spoiler. Um, spoiler alert. Yeah, I'll give a spoiler. I'll talk a little about the one you haven't seen without talking about the plot of it, but just the kind of uh, filmmaking contravices of, of, uh, how they chop things up and it worked is really cool. Okay. The last one you saw is Jesse pouring gasoline in Walt's house going, as DJ imitated it so well, going, <laughs> um, 
She's laughing in the other room. She said it a couple times yesterday and I thought it was really funny because that's kind of what he sounds like, but it's, it's not quite that intense, but it's kind of more what's going on in his head and it very accurately. And he, uh, the, you know, the next episode begins with that happening and then Walt coming into his house and smelling gas and seeing the car out front, but no Jesse. And you're like, what happened? And then they go through a bunch of stuff in the episode. And then in the middle of the episode, that starts over. It shows Jesse and you're like, wait, I've already seen this. Are they doing, are they accidentally playing the beginning of this episode again? But then it keeps going and you find out why Jesse isn't there. And it's pretty, it's really cool filmmaking, that sort of uh, screenwriting. I like that. You know, I have to say, uh, we probably ought to wrap it up. We've got our, our hour in, but I have to say that if you haven't seen, uh, the Breaking Bad series, coming from, you know, my limited, uh, youthful life of crime that I was involved in, and then coming at it from a, you know, I've been a lifelong fan of movies and movie making and, and so forth. Coming from those directions, watching this TV series, Breaking Bad, has constantly amazed me at how yeah. good they do. It's like as good as Godfather 1 and 2 almost every week. Yeah. And that's pretty hard to do, you know. Yeah, it's it's amazing really. I'll also say that now that if there's anyone out there who'd never heard the hero's journey before, I just ruined TV and movies for you, but I really didn't. <laughs> I ruined TV and movies for you in that you'll find it impossible to ever absolutely lose yourself in a movie or TV show again. You'll always be like, wait, they're pulling the same strings over and over and over. But it actually enables you to, uh, I think, enjoy really good filmmaking. It, it'll, it'll ruin crappy TV shows and movies for you forever. But it'll make you enjoy really good ones even more because you'll see how well and seamlessly and invisibly people do it when they do it right. I heard a great explanation once of great filmmaking. Uh, it was when I, influ- when I interviewed the guy from Blair Witch Project in my $30 film school book, and he was quoting someone else named Art. I can't remember the guy's last name, but it was some other screenwriter who said that uh, screenwriting, when done correctly, is poetry over math. And I really like that, and that's really what it is. And I explained the math. Now uh, you can go out and see the beauty of the poetry. And, you know... In addition to that, um, knowing this knowledge of how this structure works, it'll actually make parodies better because you can look at the parody and oh, you yeah. can see the pieces that they're – South Park. South Park makes fun of, of the process the whole time, especially the montage. They even have a song called You Gotta Have a Montage uh, <laughs> that they did in one thing. And they also do things like – um, you know, there's a, there's some things that work with it. There's, there's devices that are used around the hero's journey that they make fun of. Like one is called the ticking clock and it's usually used in act three. It's not in every hero's journey movie, but it's like, it's sometimes literally a ticking clock. Sometimes it's figuratively, but the hero is racing against a t- clock, whether he's defusing a bomb or, you know, his daughter's being held and going to be executed at midnight or whatever it is. There's a ticking clock. And in the South Park movie, when they synchronize their watches on the watch, it says Act 3, The Ticking Clock. And let's see, they make fun of it a lot in uh, in the movie Dodgeball. Like when, when they bring out the big um, pirate chest full of money that's the prize, it says, do it say Mackinac on it. How do you say that, DJ? 
Deus Ex Machina, which is Latin for the god in the basket, which is basically a cheat in the hero's journey. When you've written yourself into a corner, you know, in Greek myth, in Greek plays, they would often lower a basket down with a figure of a god in it. If they didn't have a way out of a plot point, they would just say, oh, God came down from a basket and fixed everything. And that term is used in screenwriting classes of like, you know, don't use one of those. That's cheating. They actually, a really good movie to watch is Adaptation, which is a movie about a screenwriter trying to deal with being unique within the hero's journey. And he goes to a screenwriting seminar that's an actual seminar. In the movie, they have a different, they have an actor playing the guy who does it, but he looks like him and sounds like him. And he says, like, and don't you dare use voiceover to explain something, and don't you dare use a dos ex machina. Uh, you know, he's like, you gotta have honest screenwriting, you gotta show things that could happen, you gotta do this, you gotta do that, you gotta have conflict. The, the hero actually raises his hand in this, the hero who's the screenwriter raises his hand in the seminar and says, uh, you know, well, Life doesn't always have a struggle and it doesn't have people learning lessons and friends become enemies and enemies become friends and everyone's a little richer for the experience. Uh, what if you don't have that? And the guy says, well, if you don't have that, I don't want to see your movie because it's going to be a very boring movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm done. I'm done, man. <laughs> Did you ever see the movie um, uh, Murder by Death? <laughs> nope. Oh, you got to see that. It's a parody movie, and they go through a lot of these things, and they make fun of uh, specifically mystery writers and mystery movie makers, and they and they uh. just pick this apart piece by piece, and and they come up with all these different things, like the God in the box in the basket, um, in in a in a mystery writer capacity. That's where you know you're reading through the book, and you're trying to figure out the who done it, and and you're you think it's either this guy or it's that lady over there, but you're really not sure. And then in the last chapter, new information is introduced that was held back from you by the writer through the entire book. Yeah. And now the thing's solved, and the writer cheated because they were lazy and couldn't think of a smart way to do it. Yeah, I'll tell you another. Uh... Yeah, mystery writers and soap operas often use the god in the basket. And mystery writers, which today there's a lot of that. I mean, basically um, all of those CSI shows. And actually, the CSI show is what's called a police procedural. Dragnet was the first one. And they're often, instead of called whodunits, which were the original mysteries, where they were always whodunit, um, they're called whitey dunnits or why why do you do it? Because in a lot of those, you see the crime happen and you see the killer's face in the first scene. And then it's like you're the omniscient observer. You're God who sees what the hero scientists in it don't see. And, and you get to watch them try to come to the conclusion you already know. I think There's also and one more thing mm-hmm. in modern mysteries, in modern cop shows, you know, status unit, victim squad stories type stuff. Uh, there's always a red, almost always a red herring. And I know you talk a lot about people using red herrings incorrectly in arguments, but they're often used as a plot point where, you know, okay, like let's say a kid was murdered and raped and they go question the next door neighbor who's a registered sex offender. And you're like, case closed. He did it. No, he's the red herring. They always have the guy you think did it that they question first, but he didn't do it. It just makes it more interesting for Hollywood screenwriters. Um, I hope that we have given my listeners something that they don't normally get to hear, 
And I hope, uh, you know, we had a certain stiffness here, a certain radio voice that was still going on between us. But I hope it was enough of the normal, casual stuff that we kick back and forth to give people kind of a little insight uh, as to how we do that. But hopefully, um, I'll have you back on the show again pretty soon. And if not, uh, we have tentative plans for me to visit you over on the Freedom Fiends um, as the uh, autumn and winter well, yeah, when, uh, when, when Nima's getting ready to have his kid, there may be a couple episodes where he's got to be on call or at the hospital for kid delivery. So you're going to be filling in. And I would like to say, Ben, that was some very nice redemption in the third act. Thank you. <laughs> hey, let's give a shout out to your radio program as well, because I, I find it hard to imagine, but I'm sure it's possible that there are listeners that I have that haven't heard of your radio show. So where are you on the radio? And how can people find out about that? Well, the show's called The Freedom Fiends. Uh, it's currently on nine radio stations around the country. There's a list of them at freedomfiends.com. That's freedom is the first word. Second word is fiends. Foxtrot, Echo, Echo, November, Sierra. If you go to freedomfiends.com and click on this on the link that says radio at the top, it has a list of the stations and when we're on them. And we're getting adding more all the time. And uh, you can also listen to archived episodes as a podcast, just like on the Bad Quakers. Thanks for having me on, man. It's been nice. I've hey, Michael, it. it's been really great talking to you, as always. And uh, for, any, for any of the listeners that didn't know, in the background, the extra voice was uh, Michael's lovely wife. Um, <laughs> Do you want to give her an introduction, or we want to leave her anonymously? No, nah, man, wrap it up, B. That's DJ. That's my wife. You can hear her a lot on the Freedom Fiends. Wrap it up, B. All right. Thanks a lot, folks. Michael, take care Worms. of yourself. And, folks, that was my call with Michael W. Dean. Be sure and get over to badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much.